0: In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Morning. How's everybody doing? All right. I've got here two pretty common items. You're probably familiar with them. And this hand here is just some table salt. Uh, This is pretty much what helps me survive eating kale. So, so, that's good. And then this hand is a flashlight, something you are all pretty familiar with, I'm sure. Handy for all kinds of things. Most of, them keep, most of us keep them in our vehicles. I've got a few headlamps for hiking and things like that. Uh, these are pretty common, everyday items. Most of you, like I said, have these in your own homes. You probably use them uh, daily, if not at least at least weekly. And Jesus... Jesus was a master of taking everyday familiar objects and using them to teach a little bit about what faith in him meant. And so that's what he does in Matthew chapter 5. That was the passage that Cindy read for us. So if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be verses 13 through 16. And I'm not going to reread it, but it'd be good for you to have it in front of us As we go through it. So, the first thing that Jesus says here is, You are the salt of the earth. So, the question I want to ask is, Who's the you? Is this anybody who hears Jesus or reads these words? Is anybody a salt of the earth? Or does he have a specific group of people in mind? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's pretty clear that he's talking to his disciples. It says that he went by He went up to a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." And then so on and so forth. In fact, in the original, the "you" in verse thirteen is emphatic. It's sort of like Jesus is um, almost like pointing his finger, not accusatory, but saying, "Like you and nobody else are the light." Of the world or the salt of the earth. It's the same group of people he's been talking to the whole time. It's disciples of Christ. And so, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, this teaching, like everything else in the Bible, is for you. Uh, If you're not a Christian this morning, uh, welcome. I'm glad you're here. You get the chance to kind of listen in and hear uh, what Jesus tells us about ourselves. And you can kind of get a feel for what it might be like uh, to give your life to Christ if you were to do that. So here Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what we're going to do this morning is look at uh, both of these images quickly and then get a feel for what he's saying and then look at the overall point that he's making. First off, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now salt back in Jesus' day had... Three main uses, and we use salt in a pretty similar way today. First off, it was a preservative. It would help by uh, creating less room for moisture to get into the food, and so mold and bacteria had a harder time growing. So it really slowed or even stopped the decay of food. Now, in a day before refrigeration, that was a really big deal. And so salt was a preservative, and a lot of people will uh, see Jesus' statement here and see him as saying, Hey, uh, you need to be agents that protect society from moral decay, in the same way that salt prevents food from going bad. We are supposed to slow, or even if we could, stop the world from like totally going crazy. And so we're supposed to be agents of righteousness to stand against injustice and evil in the world. The second thing that salt did was it was a seasoning. It made bland and boring food interesting. In fact, uh, during World War II, England uh, or Britain rationed all kinds of food to make it buy, to put as much energy as they could towards the war effort. But salt was one of the few things that was not rationed. And so pretty much everything became salty during World War II because they, they had limited food. It was boring, and the only way to make it a little more palatable was to put salt in it. And so... Uh, Some people would see Jesus here as saying, be the spice of life, be exciting, make life interesting, help people know what Jesus is really like, show them a tastier way of living. The third thing salt did was that it was a fertilizer. When added to manure, it would enhance the soil by bringing out some of the best elements in it. And the idea that commentators will come away with is not that Christians should jump into piles of manure, but but that we are to bring out the best in society. Not only are we to stop moral decay, but we are to affirm and agree with the good that we see, uh, even with people from other faiths or from unbelievers, and we can actually enhance it. Preservative, seasoning, and fertilizer, those are the three main uses of salt, And the thing is, the context here, it doesn't force us to choose one or the other. And pretty much all the commentators say there's no point in getting too specific. Jesus doesn't say how we are like salt. He just says that we are. And that's actually exactly what he does in the next verse. In verse 15, he says, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say how. He just says that you are. Now, light, I mean, that's a pretty, feels obvious, it's a, such a pervasive biblical theme, and even if you're not familiar with the Bible, most of us have a sense that light generally represents good and dark generally represents bad. Think Star Wars, right? We, we get that, and so almost by instinct you get what Jesus is saying here, that we are to be um, agents of goodness and happiness and light to the world. The point is that both metaphors, they're positive things. Both of them have a positive impact into the environment in which they're placed. And then he talks about this city on a hill, and that, again, is just reinforcing the idea that it's a positive thing. A city on a hill uh, back in those days, and even today still, can really help a traveler uh, at night find their way. Uh, It can mean safety. And so... It was a good thing. And regardless of how disciples are salt or light, the point is that both of them have a beneficial impact. And so you and I, disciples of Jesus, we are salt and light. That's that's part of our identity. And we are intended to display the love and grace of God to a world that is in tasteless, flavorless darkness, and we become agents of light and salt. Now, did you notice, though, that in both metaphors, Jesus brings up this concept of uselessness or absurdity? He talks about salt losing its saltiness or hiding a city on a hill or putting a basket over the lamp. What exactly is he getting at with that? Well, it's nonsense. Not that Jesus is teaching nonsense, but that he's telling you something that doesn't happen. Think about it. What is salt without saltiness? It's not salt. It's something else. I mean, can you do that with anyone else? What's Scott without Scottiness? (laughs) He's not Scott, right? It doesn't make sense. What's light that doesn't shine? It's not light. These are contradictions. They're oxymorons. Salt and light, by their very nature, to be salt and light, they act according to their nature, and if they do something other than that, then there's something other than salt and light. That's, that's just how they work. Salt is salty and light shines. I mean, it's, it's sort of common sense, right? We are salt and light. That's who Jesus has made us. And like I said, that's part of our new identity in Christ. Now, of course, in an ultimate sense, we are not the salt, the light, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. We are light only in the same sense that the moon is light. We reflect or get our light from a greater source. The Bible does call us sons of light or shining stars in the universe, but ultimately we know that we get that identity from Jesus. And he never says, you know, I'm the salt, I am the salt of the earth. He never says that, but In a parallel way of thinking, you could imply that same idea that we are who we are because he is who he is. And who we are is determined by who he has made us to be. We are becoming like him. We looked at a verse last week where it tells us that we love because he first loved us. It's the whole idea of transformation. We are becoming like Christ. And now we're to have a positive impact on the world around us. We are to draw people to Christ because they see him in us. And then in verse 16 here, Jesus gives the first and only command in this little section of verses. To let your light shine before men and women. To let them see your good deeds. And notice there, he's not telling us to become something different. He's telling us to live out the ident- he's telling us to be who you are to live out the identity that you already have in him the command here's basically to walk the walk to be a real christian to live according to your convictions now he says to let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds i think in context here what he's telling them is live according to my teachings this verse is at the earlier section of, of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew's chapter Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And if we live according to the teachings of Christ here and in other places, then that's letting our light shine. That is being salt and light. To live as followers of him, as if he really is Lord, and as if he really is teacher and we do what he says. It's not an excuse for accolades or self-promotion. It's not, he's not saying, let your light shine before men so they can see how great you are, right? He says it right there. So they may see your good deeds and do what? Give praise to your Father in heaven. Part of our process of transformation is that we stop desiring glory for ourselves and we start desiring glory for him. We've been doing this four-week series on discipleship and what we've seen is that the process of transformation from, becoming, from being a child of darkness into, a, into the light of the world, it started because we tasted and we saw that the Lord is good. We become transfixed by his glory. And as we contemplate the glory of God in the face of Christ, we become transformed into the image of Christ. And so now others, they will see that glory in us, not because of us, more more so in spite of us. They see the glory of God in the person of Christ as we start to reflect Christ more and more, and then they begin their own process of transformation. Now, I think the reason that Jesus tells his disciples this is because we will be tempted to act contrary to who we are. We are going to be tempted to to try to be salt that's not salty or light that doesn't shine. In fact, in the previous verses, just immediately preceding this, he's talking to his disciples and he's encouraging them that you're blessed are you when people persecute you. The idea is that when pressure comes from society, from our family, from friends, from coworkers or whatever, we're going to want to, to act like we're not salt and light. We're going to want to relieve that pressure in some way and we're going to want to hide just like Peter did when he was confronted and said, you are a follower of Jesus and I don't even know him. Don't hide. Don't give in to pressure. In the same way, don't try to get all buddy-buddy with the world and pretend like there's no difference because that's the temptation. The temptation is to pretend, no, I'm just like you. Really. The truth is we're not. There's a distinction not a better than, worse than distinction, but there is a difference. And the sooner we embrace that difference, the better. Yes, we, we need to show love and grace. We need to be friends of sinners. We need to hang out with the marginalized. We need to not judge people and be self-righteous and arrogant because of their sin. We're not any better than, but we are different than. The value of salt and light lies in the fact that it's different from its surroundings. Salt brings value to food because it's not the same as the food. Light, no one uses a flashlight in broad daylight. You need darkness for a flashlight to have value. Your value to the world as a believer lies in your difference from the world. And so when Jesus tells you you are salt and you are light, he's reminding you of who you are. And when the moment comes that you want to pretend like you're not that, that's not who you are. We are a peculiar people. We are difference. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared that our difference can be a source of contention. That's what it was for Christ. The light came into the world, but men loved darkness. Now we're gonna handle that difference and that contention with grace, with love. We're not gonna hold a grudge, we're not gonna get combative, but we're not gonna conform either you can bring much benefit to the world around you. You can show the world what Christ is like, but only if you remain, if you stay salt and light, if you act according to who God has made you to be in Christ, not if you pretend to be someone you're not. This is one of the most freeing things in terms of witnessing and evangelism to the world. I don't know about you, but for a long time in my own walk with the Lord, evangelism and witnessing and telling other people about Jesus was so intimidating because I felt like I had to try to be someone I wasn't. When the truth is, no, I just need to be who I am in Christ. And that's my witness. I need to actually talk about Christ because he is my Lord. And I don't need to force myself to to do something weird. I need to get over my fear of man, but that's pretty much it. So what I want to do now uh, is, is what I've done for the last two weeks. I want to give us a list of some practical ways we can be salt and light. Now, as I've done the last couple of weeks, let me preface the list once again. This is for believers. Remember, Jesus is talking to people who are already followers of him. This is not a list of how you become salt and light. This is a list of how you Act like salt and light. And that, that's a difference. This is not you transforming yourself. This is just you responding to who Jesus has made you to be. Now again, these traits, they come from a larger list of a profile of a mature disciple. If you want a hard copy, they're on the welcome table in the foyer in the back. Or you can write disciple profile on your connect card, and I'll try to get a digital copy email to you. If you've done that in the last couple of weeks, you should have gotten one in your email this last week. If you didn't, make a note on your Connect card and I'll follow up. Okay, so here we go. Number one, disciples capitalize on every opportunity to share Christ with others. We strike while the iron's hot. We learn to ask good questions that might bring about spiritual conversations, We get over our fear of man. We get over the the fear of what they're going to think of us or we're going to be weird because we say the name Jesus or whatever it is, but we are going to put him on the table. Now, we're not going to shove it down people's throats, but we're not silent either. So my encouragement to you is pray regularly for these opportunities. And whatever obstacle you see in the way of capitalizing on the opportunity, pray for that. If you're like me, a huge part of it is fear of man. I just feel awkward bringing it up. Pray that the Lord would free you from that. Proverbs 29:25 says that fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If you keep silent because you're afraid of what they think of you, in the long run that will be a snare. You're trying to keep yourself safe, but it's a trap. So whatever obstacle you see in the way between you and capitalizing on every opportunity for Christ, bring that before the Lord. Pray for open doors. Pray for boldness. Pray for the wisdom to see. In addition, I would encourage you to think of a handful of questions, two or three maybe, that are good, non-confrontational questions because that's what our society needs. We're not an in-your-face-about-religion society. We need good, non-confrontational questions that might bring around Christ in conversation. One helpful one for me, just... You're not being manipulated. If you honestly want to get to know the person, you ask about their upbringing, ask about their parents, their siblings, and then you might throw in the question: do you guys go to church growing up? Do you have any sort of faith background? That's a good question, good conversation starter that might bring it around. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Don't force it. But when the opportunity arises, go for it. Number two: Christians do good works. That's exactly what Jesus says here, right? That they may see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. So live with integrity and honesty. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're a business person, tell them the whole truth, not just enough to get them to sign the contract. Don't, don't go in with your neighbors and your, and your coworkers or whoever it is in, in sin just to try to win a hearing with them. If you're a student, don't take shortcuts. Don't cheat. Live with integrity. Live according to your convictions. Take care of the poor. Be generous with your money. And don't do it in a way that's proud and self-serving, but you don't need to totally hide it either. Don't do it out of sense of pride, but do it so that the people around you would see God's work in your life. And any moment someone tries to praise you, you're just like, dude, I'm only doing this because of how good God's been to me. Do good around so that those around you would see it and praise God. Throughout history, Christians have been pioneers in education, in medicine, in literature, in art. How many hospitals around the world were started by believers? How many, you, so, so many of the uh, prestigious universities in our nation started as seminaries or religious schools, even if nowadays they've wandered far, far from it. Christians have a legacy of doing good for society, and we can continue that legacy, and we ought to. That is being salt and light. Number three, disciples have a growing love for the lost. We desire their salvation. And I actually am gonna do something a little bit weird here. I'm gonna just pause and pray, because this one in particular, as I was thinking through it, I don't know if I can, t- I, I know I can't teach it well enough. The Holy Spirit has to be working in us. So I'm just gonna pray. Lord, break our hearts for those around us, Would you please, Lord, give us your heart that does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather uh, that we would prefer that they would turn from their ways and live. Give us the heart of Paul who said that he would rather be cut off than see his people reject you. Put in us, Lord, a Christ-like compassion and desire to see those who don't know you come into the light. Give us a love for the lost. Amen. You guys, we have got to care. We, we have to care. We can't be arrogant. We can't be self-righteous. We have to want them to be saved. Too many of us, and, <clears throat> and I include myself in this, we've just become far too comfortable thinking that family members or friends will never come to know the Lord. And so we've become apathetic and way too used to the idea that they're going to hell. Lord, forgive us. This, this is serious. We need to want it. And the only way I know to change that is that God would break our hearts for them. And it leads me to the next point. We need to pray for the salvation of the unsaved. <clears throat> By way of a practical tool for you, inside each of your worship folders, and if you don't have one, there's more on the welcome table in the back. It's a list of 11 ways to pray for your friends who don't know the Lord. It's basically just Bible verses with a blank where you can insert the person's name, and it can teach you how to pray and how to pray consistently for those who do not know Jesus. You guys, we need to be intentional about this. My practical encouragement for you, just one suggestion of how you might live this out, is set aside one day of the week And fast from lunch that day. Don't eat lunch and spend that time praying for specific people by name, your family members, your coworkers, your friends, and just go through that list and just pray. And even if at first it feels dry, do it over and over again, including the prayer, Lord, I don't want this to feel dry. I know I should care more. Please help me. And just pray regularly. Anyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus, we are all products of other people's prayers. I know I am. And even if you came to the Lord when you were five or six and you, I mean, you were told about Jesus the second you were born, your parents had been praying for you. And so we've got to be praying that God would open their eyes, that he would soften their hearts, that he would give us, like I said, opportunities. And if you don't live near them, if you've got family members or friends that you care about, but, but you're not in their life day to day, pray for others to be in their life. Pray that God would send someone who's got a lot of credibility into their life. Number five, disciples sacrifice for the spread of the gospel. The salvation of those who do not know the Lord, being salt and light, the spreading of the gospel is more important to us than our time, than our money, than our convenience. And so we give those things up that Christ might be known We give financially to the church and to missions organizations to support the spread of the gospel, especially to unreached people groups who have no access to the gospel. We help take care of the poor in Jesus' name and we're willing to buy them dinner in addition to our own. We are hospitable, inviting non-believers, even the weird ones, into our homes to have conversations with them. And hoping in all of this, that they would get a small sample of what Christ is like. You guys, disciples are not made on accident. This isn't something you can just come to church and pay the pros to do. This is something we are all engaged in. We've got to be intentional and we've got to be willing to make personal sacrifices to make it happen. Now, of course, the Lord is sovereign. You cannot bring the kingdom of God on your own, but you're one of the means he might use. Number six, disciples understand the extent of the mission involves going into all nations, even to the ends of the earth. And not only do we understand it, we engage in it. From the very beginning, God's redemptive plan has included people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation into the ends of the earth. The mission is so much larger than the Philida neighborhood, than Clark County, Southwest Wash, all of Washington State, or the Pacific Northwest. Jesus' plan is so much bigger than any one nation, race, or people group. It is global. It is for the world. And I don't know about you, but in my experience in the church, uh, and not just this church, just kind of Christianity in general, it seems like there's this unspoken distinction between those who are passionate about foreign missions that that you know they care about it and they give to it and they go to the conferences and they're you know that's their thing and there's the rest of us who aren't against that but that's not like our thing you know we've got our own other thing that we're into and that's fine if god's put something on your heart a ministry that you care about but i guess maybe i'm one of these weird people but missions is God's thing. Foreign missions to unreached people groups is God's thing. And so it's all of our thing. We have got to be engaged in it. And most of us in this room won't be the ones to go to the unreached people group somewhere in the Himalayans. That, That won't be us. You'll probably, most of us, stay here. But that doesn't give us an excuse that we're out of it. We are all engaged in financially giving and praying consistently, regularly, effectively for missionaries. And if the Lord does tap you on the shoulder, you get up, you quit your job, you sell your house, and you go. Because it matters that much to the ends of the earth. We are salt and light, and there are places that are in darkness that are tasteless, and there's no one there right now at all. We've got to get the gospel to them. We are all in this together. So my practical encouragement to you, if if you're feeling like, yeah, I I need to get more into missions, I need to get more involved in spreading the gospel globally, next month there's a large conference, so you can become one of those weird people that goes to the conferences. Um, It's January 18th and 19th. It's a two-day conference. It's free, and it's a 20-minute drive from here. Okay? And even if you just go one day, just on Saturday, it's still worth your time. You'll meet hundreds of missionaries. You'll hear, and you can just kind of like put your toe in the water and sort of get a sense for what God's doing. But that's one practical way. It's called Mission Connection. So you can just Google Mission Connection Portland. It'll be the first thing that comes up. If Googling's not your thing, write on your Connect card. I will help you find the details. Okay? So as I've done for the last two weeks, let me remind you that this list, don't be overwhelmed by it. This is how we respond. I'm not telling you, if you don't do these things, God doesn't love you. I'm telling you that Jesus has made you salt and light. And in order to live out that identity, here are six practical ways to do it. So don't be overwhelmed. My encouragement to you is to find one item on that list to work on. By grace-driven effort, with the help of others, work on one thing. Now, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, I've asked you for one thing each week. And so you'll have, you'd you have three things. Now, let me zoom back just a bit. We've been in a series of discipleship. And most people, when they think of the term discipleship, at least in, in the Christian world, if that's a familiar term to you, most of us think of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, Jedi Master and Apprentice kind of thing. And that's not totally wrong. Um, and I've sort of come at it from a different angle, looking more at discipleship as this large process of transformation that God has us on. My encouragement to you now at this point, find your Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay? Okay? find your Jedi master, find somebody who is further down the road than you are and show them. These are my three things. This is my one thing that I want to work on. Can you help me? And and however it works in your guys' schedule, once a week, once a month, whatever it is, but meet, pray together. They can pray with you for your lost loved ones. They can pray for you They can help you understand what the Bible says on certain passages that you just don't get or maybe don't like. But my encouragement is we can't do this together. God has intentionally designed the process of transformation like a three-legged race. You need somebody else. So, let's review where we've been and then we'll wrap it up. On week one, a month ago, we started in Psalm 34, 8. We saw that taste and see that the Lord is good. That the process of transformation is a holy obsession, a fascination with God. And we behold his glory in the face of Christ and then we become transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And the next week we saw that that process of transformation is described as living in the light. When Jesus says, I came as a light so that men may no longer remain in the darkness, he has come to bring you out of the light. And what that means, at least in part, is that you would believe God, that you would see God, that your relationship with God, though it was once severed by your own selfishness and sin and rebellion, has been restored because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And then last week we saw that living in the light with God necessarily means living in the light with one another. We love because he first loved us. We can't say I love God and hate our brother at the same time because the same cause of separation between us and God is the same cause of separation between each other. And you can't claim to be done with one and not the other. And so the same gospel that makes us children of God makes us brothers and sisters. And now we have the holy obligation and privilege of loving one another, of committing to one another. And then third, today we see that the process of discipleship has transformed us so that we don't just live in the light with God and with each other, but we actually become the light to those who don't know. We are the light of the world to a dark and dying people. And God has sent us as his agents so that others might taste and see and begin their own journey of discipleship. Jesus told his disciples in John 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are now sent into the world as agents of Christ. So, big picture, discipleship, is a process that transforms us in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other, in our relationship to a lost and dying world. My hope is that you've been given some practical steps as to what it looks like to be discipled, to be a mature disciple in each one of those areas. And my final encouragement to you is find someone to help you. With it, The reason I intentionally didn't create some kind of sign-up process is because I wanted you to take a little bit of ownership for your own spiritual growth. And I understand for some of you that will be a, um, a growing step, even talking to someone about it. But I, I feel like it's important enough that I wanted to place the onus on you. So find mentors who can help you along the way. Find your Jedi Master, your Gandalf, whatever it is. None of us has arrived yet. The most spiritual in this room has places to grow. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for the process of discipleship, for making us new men and women. Thank you, God, that we are your children, that we are a family, and that we are a community that shares the love of God with a lost world. Lord, would you please Use us to bring others into the light. As we celebrate the Lord's table now, God, may we remember all that you have done for us. May we taste and see again your goodness and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.